All right, guys. So uh, I, I promise this is not a bait and switch. I'm not going to, you know, completely change the ball game on you here. But I do have to say that I titled this "Rigid Meal Plans versus If It Fits Your Macros" because that that is how it plays out the way this study design was executed. But let me let me get right into the study itself and explain what I mean because it is I've never even heard of somebody doing a research design like this. So a randomized trial of improved weight loss with a prepared meal plan in overweight and obese patients. This was in the uh, JAMA, uh, uh, Journal of American Medical Association, the internal medicine side, and um, not that old, you know, 2000. But here's what's interesting to me. We know the phrasing flexible dieting wasn't really normalized or part of popular culture until maybe 15 years ago. So for them to use what they call a usual care diet and the way they applied it is very interesting. So uh, their objective to assess the long-term effects of prepackaged, nutritionally complete prepared meal plans compared to a usual care diet on weight loss and cardiovascular risk factors in overweight and obese persons. So a usual care diet is this, and this is why I'm tagging it as if it fits your macros. And you'll see this on the next couple of slides. What they wanted to do with these particular patients is give some of them the food. Here are your meals. Literally, like, come pick them up, back your truck up to the dock, and you're going to get two weeks at a time worth of every single meal you're going to consume. For the other people in the group, they said, we're going to give you the same nutritional education and guidelines. All of these meals include this many daily calories, this amount of protein, carbs, and fat. And we want you to keep the same nutritionally sound principles in line. But here's a here's a wad of cash. You guys go figure out what you want to eat, eat whatever you want, and then we're going to compare. So it really was kind of an if it fits your macros. You're just literally going to go buy your own food, prepare your own food, and then consume your own food. So it's a little bit of an interesting precursor to the flexible dieting and if it fits your macros. And the reason I delineate those two things, the reason I didn't say this is a comparison to flexible dieting, is purely by my definition as the guy who created the whole concept of macronutrient-based tracking which became flexible dieting, we do not divorce the fact that we want people to be aligned with good health values, and we want to still embed enough high-quality structure from which you can employ the level of flexibility you want. If it fits your macros became an acronym for basically just eating whatever shit you want to shove in your mouth, as long as the math works out. It, it almost became a meme of flexible dieting. Not to everybody, and I'm not saying that was even their intent, whoever coined that phrase, but that's that's what it, what it has become by and large. It's just eat donuts, Pop-Tarts, candy, just all you want, pizza, burgers. What One, one person even doing kind of a little quasi-anecdotal self-case study I think you know, in a high-level person, dieted for a whole bodybuilding contest, getting down to three, four percent body fat, eating nothing but junk food. He just wanted to show that if you do the math, 
if it fits your macros, you can do it. It's all about quantity. Obviously, that's not the principle that we stand on. We want there to be a substantial amount of quality embedded into that quantity. So let's uh, let's get into this study. I'll show you again how they they broke this down. So randomized multi-center study, 302 people. And one of the things that they were doing as a secondary, they, they wanted to look at weight loss first, but they wanted to use hypertension and dyslipidemia, which is just anybody that has a you know high cholesterol or lipid profile issue and type two diabetes as, as two groups. Cause they, I don't know why, I guess it was probably sponsored by, you know, cardiovascular people, heart groups and so forth. This was in five different major university centers all around the world, East coast, West coast, South. And they just decided to make it a really, really big study, probably for the purposes of it being in uh, JAMA. So uh, around half, not exactly half, but you can see the numbers there of people either either had diabetes or they had hypertension and dyslipidemia. That was the base. No, no control outside of those disease populations. The food that they were given was 22% of calories and fat, 58% carbs, 20 from protein. And, and just as a little side note, I like that. Because if if you know any any of my work, you know I very generally say twenty to twenty five percent of calories from fat while you're losing weight is a really good target. Less than twenty percent, and you could start getting into some hormonal issues, reduce testosterone, that sort of thing. When you're trying to maintain your weight, twenty five to thirty percent of calories from fat can give you more flexibility. Uh, more than 30%, you really start increasing your risk of heart disease and eat no matter how health, healthy you eat. So I, I like that. That's great dietetic standards. 20% from protein is actually about two times the RDA, which again is the science consensus on an actual you know better level than the RDA. So exceptional. I'm, I'm glad they did something like this as the norm because it doesn't confound the study with other variables we have to sift through like, well, what if they had done it this way? Or what if the, you know this food was a little wonky over here? Why didn't they do this? So this is just baseline, a great, great diet. The other thing they did with this is, is they made sure, and this is why it was done with, with dietitians in place and why it, it was a, a UCD type program where they said, we're going to make sure the prepackaged foods and what we advise everybody else to do has all the micronutrients that we need, covers all of the bases. So it was very healthily done as much as possible. So again, their primary outcome measure was weight change. Secondary were to look at blood pressure, lipids, lipoproteins, glucose, all those kind of things that you would see with hypertension and different forms of metabolic syndrome and diabetes. Okay, so as I said, um, I already went through the subjects there, universities. Uh, BMI is their qualifications to be in the study. BMI above 25, lower than 42. Kind of, you know, that's pretty big range. You go from being clinically overweight to being morbidly obese, but not exceptionally so. It was a 52-week study, which gives us some elbow room to discern some of the results. And that was 52 weeks after they did a four-week baseline. So they brought people in, they did all kinds of metabolic cart testing, fasting blood work twice to make sure that they really had good solid numbers. They had to go through all the counseling and the process and procedures. Here's how we're going to do this. 
And using metabolic cart testing, Harris Benedict, hypoenergetic, meaning reduced calorie diets, uh, they were given the food, the all of the people who were given the prepackaged food versus the people who who just got the instructions and the money to go buy their own food, they were given a diet that would ostensibly give them a two pound per week weight loss pace. So that's pretty, pretty good, pretty aggressive. I mean, a lot of people can lose that right off the bat because they're so heavy. They have so much body mass and energy demand, but anybody who's tried to sustain weight loss for a long period of time, that's pretty aggressive. So that means these calories were were no joke. This was a serious diet. They did seven assessments. So they had people come in at different times uh, just to you know go through some journaling uh, oversight, uh, do some testing, you know, kind of update them on the counseling and what they're supposed to be doing. They they actually even did assessments on compliance, which we'll get into in a second. Uh, the the prepackaged meals, so they they got a menu, and as I mentioned already, you you, you got your food in two week blocks. So just just like ordering from a menu, or if you've ever been an inpatient at the hospital and you have to fill out your kind of meal chart for the day, this is what I want. You had you had options. You had seven breakfast options, thirteen lunch, twelve dinner, eight snacks. Then you had a little bonus list. They said you know once a day you get a little treat. It, it included alcohol or something, you know, a little bit more decadent, a little higher fat or high sugar, but very much in line with dietetic standards. These were foods if, if you consumed and, and for every person, remember, out of every single one of these subjects with different genetics, a different age, different health status, they were tested individually for their metabolic capacity and they were given the food in the amounts that were right for them but they all had these different options. They would go pick up their food and they were set for the next couple of weeks. Now, one of the things I have to say about the, if it fits your macros, flexible dieting, and even these prepackaged meals, remember that dietetic standards are very different than what we may consider dieting culture in what I would say is a more advanced status, just kind of what we do as coaches and typical diets engaged in this, this kind of cultural pursuit, because you guys have all been in the hospital or seen people in the hospital and you know, what comes on those trays, registered dietitians are creating those meals based on the same standards. They have to get all, all of the essential daily micronutrients and cover all the bases. You got to have enough vitamin C, enough calcium, this and that. And yet you're looking at a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on white bread, tapioca pudding, a jello cube, 2% chocolate milk. So it's not like these people were just given chicken and broccoli for a year or oatmeal and protein powder for a year. These were probably pretty good foods that you would enjoy. You know, think of going to get TV dinners of any sort, even healthy choice um, you know, Weight Watchers meals, things like that at, at a at a grocery store. So real food, but it was in the calorie and macronutrient range that was prescribed and, and dietetically had all the bases covered. So again, the usual care diet people, they got the instructions. This is what you need to look for. This is what it's supposed to be. Your counterparts over here in the study, this is what they're doing. And we've taken care of that for them. 
you're just, you're getting reimbursed for all of your food. You go buy it, you get a year of free food to be in this study. We just need you to, to journal it, to stay in line. Like these are the instructions. This is the amount you are supposed to eat. So go do this for a year. We're paying you to be in the study, get the job done and be a good little citizen in this study. So let's see what happened. In the, just the weight loss, I'm not going to look at all those other biomedical markers. I'll address that in just a second. But just in weight loss alone, at the end of a year, the hypertension group lost 5.8 kilograms. So that's, what are we looking at? About 13, 14 pounds. And the, uh, the diabetes group lost about half of that. And these are the people on the meal plan. So they got their prepackaged food. The people who got to eat whatever they want. Ah, I get to go out and I'll, I can eat some pizza. I can eat this. I can eat chicken, ostrich, whatever I want. I, I get to choose it. I just have to stay within these macronutrient ranges. Look, they lost 300 to 350% less. Even though they had flexibility, which is supposed to be the end-all answer, correct? We're going to get to some really important points about this. The first is, well, maybe I'll wait till I get to the other other things. So, so just remember these numbers. I should have converted this to pounds for you, but you know, times 2.2. So 13, 14 pounds was the most somebody lost in a year. That was the meal pan group. group. Very briefly, because I'm not going to talk about this coming up. A hypertensive group with cholesterol, high cholesterol, Versus diabetes, probably most of them type 2 diabetes because we're dealing with obese patients. It's interesting that one group would do twice as well. Um, I, I'm not going to comment a lot on that. I mean, it would just be conjecture anyway. But that alone is interesting that per diagnosis, per health status, to even be in that position means you you're probably following different types of lifestyles, less athletic or not, less active or not. Different types of foods may lead you to higher cholesterol versus diabetes and so forth. Um, but it, it actually followed through those numbers to to the people doing you know some form of flexible dieting or if it fits your macros and the fact that. You know, even again, the diabetes group did did the least well on that. Maybe Kevin will will comment on that. But here here are some interesting things. These are my discussion points, and like I said, this is going to be pretty brief on the study itself because I I really think there's some incredible narrative points to discuss here, and how we convey and perceive flexible dieting. So all of the health markers that they said were secondary parts of the study. They did improve for everybody. Everybody lost a little bit of weight through the study. Everybody ate a little bit better. But it's still very interesting to me that when these people were given diets, including the actual food you are supposed to eat, that should result in a two-pound weight loss per week. So somebody could have lost 100 pounds on the study like, this is awesome. This is my chance. I'm going to study. I'm accountable. They're giving me the freaking food. I'm going to do this. The average person lost 13, 14 pounds. So uh, something's missing. You know, obviously there wasn't active coaching in this. They weren't 
coming into a you know facility to work out with a trainer or a coach. They weren't getting support and education ongoing. It was just here's what we're doing. Comparing these two groups, you guys do it, and we'll we'll check in seven times over the next year. Now, I do like, I really, 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 really like that they made compliance part of the study. And that's just self-reporting. So at these different marks, the 12-week mark, the six-month mark, the the 12-month mark, the, as they came in for reassessments, they were saying, like, are you, are you cheating on your diet? Being a good little boy, good little girl? Like, what's going on? Tell us the truth. And look at these differences. Uh, the, 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 the slash here in between, the, the front number, 92% versus 87, 92% is the dyslipidemia in hypertension group. The 87% is the diabetic group versus the same. And that's the, that's the meal plan group. And so, so at the 12 week mark, 92 and 87% of the meal plan group said, yeah, man, we're doing it. We're in it 12 weeks in let's go. The, the people who are doing flexible dieting, if it fits your macros, they were already down half that 44 and 31%. And again, really showing the difference between those two groups, between the the cholesterol and hypertension group versus the the, uh, the diabetic group. I don't know why. Uh, but anyway, that's a look at that. I mean, 92% to 44, 87% to 31. At 12 weeks, the people with, and this is what I want you to hear loud, loud and clear, the people with less structure were already done. They just cashed in the chips. Fuck it, I'm done. Like I, I don't even want to be in the study anymore. You're when you get down to uh, look. Look at this 52 week mark. 19 percent of the people are still even even remotely compliant, and yet with the meal plan, you're getting your food. You're getting you're getting the food in your hands given to you pretty consistently staying as high as 74% from, from 92 to 75 to 74, three quarters of those people were saying, yeah, as long as you're feeding me, as long as you're giving me the food, I'll, I'll eat it. So the, the, the three questions I have for you guys as prompts, and, and I really would love to hear your thoughts. Um, first of all, I, I want to take us and insert us into this study. Because I, some of you can, some of you do, you know, there are plenty of food service companies online. A lot of you probably order some meals, if not all of your meals from a food service company. So is there value in that? Is it just laziness? Does it lead to long-term failure? You know, because we do have that option. We have the option to get the same type of service that these people did, but you can also do it yourself. You can also prep your own food. And, and many of you do that. And so it still does become pre-packaged, high structure. I don't want to use the word rigid meal planning in a negative way, but but it's it's kind of rigid. I mean, these are the foods I'm going to eat by choice. You're deciding what foods you want to make. You have the flexibility to decide what to go buy and what to prepare. But once you do that, that's a structured meal plan. We can do that. But we also have flexibility, right? So how much structure versus how much flexibility? We have so many podcasts, so many academic pieces that we've done on this, so many research reviews we've done on different tangential sides of this. As you will always, always, always hear me say, 
and I even had this in the slide and then I erased it because uh, I knew I would just bring it up anyway. Structure versus flexibility, it's brick and it's mortar. You can't build a house, you can't build a wall, you can't build a foundation with just mortar, with just flexibility. Bricks are the structure. When I decide I'm going to have these foods that I buy from the grocery store regularly because this is my structure, these are the foods that I want based on my health values and goals, even aesthetic goals. And so that's what I'm going to do. The amount I consume and my compliance with them, if I'm going to add a little bit of this or this or this, that's the flexibility. So we talk a lot, you guys know this, about the difference between structure and flexibility and how we need both. Uh, but this study absolutely shows that for the lay person, if you don't have enough structure, you have virtually no chance of success. You still have to have structure. And as soon as clients speak to me about inconsistencies, like why am I not losing as fast? Or, you know, I lost a little bit, then I gained some, and now I'm up, I'm down, I'm this, I'm that. The first thing I do, let me see your food logs. Let me see. And if I see all kinds of different foods and some meals out, some meals in, but but every, there's just no structure to it, I know with 30 years of experience, that's what we have to tackle first. There may be other, other parts to the equation, but we have to make sure that there's something that's consistent and reliable with the fewest moving parts. So we get a handle on that, and then we can start adding in different layers of flexibility as we need. But again, another just nuance is the fact that even the people with the food given to them who could have lost 50, 70, 100 pounds, they lost 13. So clearly there's something even more than just quote, following a diet. And that's, that's why flexible dieting, not the meme culture of if it fits your macros, but flexible dieting with support, with high structure, with appropriate flexibility, with support, with continuing education, with somebody to help you flow through those physiological and, and social changes in your life. That's why that's all important, important, because even though to the tune of 300 and 350% high structure beat chaos and no structure, I wouldn't call 13 pounds in a year, high, high success. So a rigid meal plan alone isn't exactly the, the darling here. That's, that's not a huge win, but at least shows us that structure is far more important first before you can start engaging in and employing flexibility. So the floor is yours. First of all, Kevin, while everybody else is unmuting and getting ready to launch some thoughts, uh, why do you think people with diabetes had a harder time than people with, with high cholesterol? And then still wrestling with it. What I, what jumps to me from a practical, logical medical reason is those with hypertension, they have the assistance of hypertensive meds. Therefore they're flushing more water out. And just as they lose more weight they're maybe their meds aren't being adjusted. So therefore their effects of the medication are stronger and therefore they're continuing to just urinate more and more. I don't know otherwise, other than just happenstance and there's no rhyme or reason. 
Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, that's a good question because that I, there were some notes in the study about qualifying issues like medication, but with those BMI levels, I'm sure they were allowed to use medicine. I just know how that was controlled for, but that, that is a good thought. Any other, uh, any other thoughts or questions as you guys uh, think through this on the, the panel here? Got Erica, Becky, Jack, Tony, Amy, good, good crowd here today. Amanda. I have a question. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Okay. So I have a question about the percentage of what they were eating. Mm -hmm. So I was a little bit surprised to see that the fat was higher than the protein for one. And then, um, also from my understanding, well, and I don't know how much to put behind this, but like I was always under the assumption that if you want to lose, then you should do like a 40, 40, 20. Um, I don't know if that's kind of high for protein, but I'm still trying to figure that out myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Really, really good question. Um, so first it's you, when you said that you're surprised that fat was higher than protein, that's a percent of calories. So by gram, it was still much higher in protein. So, um, you know, so, so 22% of calories from fat, let's say somebody had about a, you know, 1500 or 1400 calorie diet, you're still looking at only 30, 35 grams of fat in about 80, 90, 100 grams of protein, probably closer to 80 or 90. So, mm-hmm. so it's, it's, you know, that was a percent increase and, and 20 going to your 40, 40, 20, um, that probably gets somebody up to closer to three to four times the RDA with protein, which it's not necessarily harmful, but it's not necessary. Um, so it's, there are more things. I, I don't go by those percentages for that reason. That, that, that may be easier for some people who are just making kind of a pop culture diet. But if you look at the RDA and you look at a variable of the RDA, like I said two times the RDA is really the scientific community consensus on in research where the top of the bell curve is for usefulness of protein and getting all the benefits from it. More than that has a huge law of diminishing returns. So if you went up to two and a half, three, three and a half times the RDA, now you're giving up carbs for that protein. The protein's not doing anything extra for you metabolically, but extra carbs would. It's not doing anything for you anabolically, but extra carbs would. So the further you get away from two to two and a half times the RDA in protein, you're actually giving yourself less of an advantage. You're just, you're just suffering needlessly. So these people that were in this, this case study, they weren't, it didn't say whether or not they were expending any calories. Like they weren't exercising that wasn't included. Right. Yep. That was not part of the study. So to say that they were, then maybe, maybe they would need more protein. Do you think that is that something that you would factor in? Because I feel like that's the low side. Could be helpful, but so 20% of my current calories from protein would be 112 grams of protein a day. That's about what I eat. And when I eat a little bit more, like one extra serving, like let's say I get really gung-ho and have an extra protein shake, I have tested this several times. I I will gain 
three, four, five pounds of lean body mass, which brings me up to like my lifetime high of muscle mass, but no higher. And then as soon as I go back down to 100 to 115 grams of protein a day, I lose a couple pounds of lean body mass, but I don't lose more. So it's like I said, that two times the RDA is really kind of the top of the bell curve. That's that's where almost everybody finds all of their best results. Okay. Well, that's really helpful for me personally, because I feel like I'm always higher on the, on the protein and I'm thinking, well, Hey, if, if I can bring my protein down a bit and eat more carbs, that'd be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so it, that's definitely helpful. It, it, it's not in, you know, studies have also shown that up to three times the RDA has some benefit for some people, some of the time, including mm-hmm. somebody who's working out extremely hard. You're in a calorie deficit. You're getting really lean. That's where I would definitely take that up. So when I was competing as a pro 20, 25 years ago, I would routinely eat 200, 225 grams of protein a day. It didn't hurt me. I had blood labs all the time. My kidneys and liver weren't in any less repair. Um, But it would be interesting now to diet to that level saying, well, gosh, if I only really needed 125 or 150 and I could get the benefit of more carbs, dieting may have been easier. I might've actually gotten a little leaner. I don't know. Um, But you know, you, you definitely have margin to go up a little bit. I just like you're suggesting, I wouldn't say you have to give yourself some slack and be okay with coming down. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed this, um, this research review. It's funny because, um, I'm actually trying to help my mom lose weight. She's finally said, okay, I'll let you help me. And it's funny because we were just talking about meal planning and she's like, yeah, yeah. Just tell me, just make a list of things that I need to buy from the grocery store and tell me what I need to eat. And I'm just a creature of, of habit. So like, I'll just eat the same thing over and over and over again. I think that has a lot to do with this case study because the personality has so much, it's a huge role, you know, are you the type of person that's okay with eating the same thing? You know, these people were eating maybe the same thing for two weeks or maybe it was the same meal for two weeks. Are you okay with that? You know? Maybe they were like, I'm, I'm folding because I'm tired of eating the same meal. Maybe it wasn't that good of a meal, you know, and they were just only lost 13 pounds in a year. So I think, I think they were eating more than those foods too. So clearly wasn't satisfying because there were a few trips to Dairy Queen in there somewhere. Right. Yeah. You know, or you could just be, you know, someone that is okay with just, Hey, give me, give me the meal. I don't care what it is. You know, I'm, I think, like I said, personality, there's just has a huge role to play. There's so many factors to consider. Um, what is your personality type when it comes down to that? And this is always a good place to start, like high structure. Sure. Meal plan, eat the same thing every day for a week. Let's do it. Let's baseline you out, make you feel comf- comfortable and confident. Then we have to start learning flexibility or you cannot sustain this for long at all. Absolutely. And I love what you said at the end. I think it's not just like, Hey, um, you know, here's your diet. There's just like, you, you need to learn this on your own. You need to create that, that, um, healthy lifestyle. You need to learn what's happening in your body. I sent my mom, one of the, I shared with her, one of the, um, uh, podcasts that you did on the metabolic switch so that way she can understand it herself. Like 
I feel like once you're in that mindset and you're motivated and saying, hey, I'm going to do this, I'm ready, then all of those things just need to fall in line, including that support. So for sure. That's good. Well, I know we have National Academy of Metabolic Science graduate coach Jack Mills, who came on the video screen here. So I think he's going to ask a question or make a comment. The only comment I'm thinking is, where do I sign up to get my food paid for for a year? <laughs> right. Exactly. But, Isn't uh, that part of your coaching plan? Don't you do that for clients? You just give them the, the food? <laughs> I would have to charge a lot, I think, to be able to cover all the food costs. Ah. But no, it was really good. Um, lots of takeaways. And it, it really explains the importance of uh, explaining that structure and uh, those really good habits to build before kind of letting more of the reins grow the reins go and uh i know for my wife and i we to the to the meal plan uh side of it we do so much better when we do like a buffet style meal prep where we have our all of our meals prepped and we have that structure there or we have those foods there and we don't have to even think uh we just reach for our meal throw it in the microwave or heat it up and it's done that is a really good point jack and you know, a lot of people look to us as coaches and professionals and they think, well, that's easy for you. This is what you do. It's like, well, we still like the same, like we have the same taste buds. We like wine and ice cream and other things and ice cream. Um, but when it is a habit, when you have those health aligned goals, like, well, I, I do, I want to be healthy and lean and functional. You get those foods, you prep them, you have them available and you do the right thing for your health knowing that there, there is still margin for flexibility, you know, especially in maintenance. And that's the thing when somebody goes from a calorie deficit meeting goals, and they've worked that hard, you don't just walk away from all of that, you integrate as much of that as you need to, to maintain yourself as that person. But you have so much more calorie intake now from having that calorie deficit restored, that I mean, that's great margin. If you start exceeding that, I mean, I don't mean to be crass, but you're just going right back into some pretty harsh gluttony, you know, it's, but you still, like you said, you, you can, you can have so much flavor. You can do so much with healthy food. So any, uh, any other thoughts? Great, great questions and comments there, Amanda and Jack, anybody else? I will make a note. If anybody does want to jump in, just please unmute and, and that kind of thing. But uh, I, I met a, a, I can't say she's my client for the first time. One of my coaches from another city has a client and he said, Joe, I just found out so-and-so comes to Evansville to work once in a while. She's a, you know, in her job, she travels and she's there right now and she'd love to meet you. I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. Um, so we went out to dinner and when you're around somebody that you know is just healthy, like this is a person who is in the fitness competitive world, and you go to this place and it's just like, you know, automatically, it's a really nice place. You could get some really decadent food. It's like, well, I'm going to have the salad with salmon or this or this, and I want the oil and vinegar, you know, vinegar like on the side. And, you know, everybody's just going around the table making those kinds of orders. And you look around the restaurant <laughs> and you see just piles of all of this other food, you know, thousands of calories of saturated fat and so forth. And it's like, this was a really good meal. I mean, like we had an incredibly exquisite 
expensive meal. And I walked away not even feeling that full. I was satisfied, but I, I didn't go home and feel gross. Uh, my weight didn't go up the next day. I was in a restaurant having a pretty decadent meal. My weight did not go up even because of, quote, sodium or anything else. And that should be part of real life. There are times you do go out and extend the amount of calories you eat a little bit, but that just can't be your norm. Can't be any of our norms while we're trying to lose weight or maintain. All right. Well, if you guys don't have any other comments or questions, I told you this was going to be kind of a short one, but I thought it had a really great couple of nuggets of helpful information. I mean, that's that's pretty confirming. And, and the one thing I'll say in closing, because Amanda brought it up, this was, this didn't have a lot of controls on purpose. It was a full year, so you get some a lot of room to do well or make mistakes, and there weren't a lot of controls because they wanted to see how people really will do in the wild in their normal scenarios. They weren't locked up in inpatient studies, which have incredible value. Those are great studies, but this was a whole different animal, and and it was it, and that has value too. So you guys, thanks for being here. Great group. I know those who watch on the playback will will have some questions as well. Hey, it's Erica. I did have a quick question for oh, you. Yes, I put it in I put it in the comments, but kind of oh, going back to what you had your um personal analysis of when you dropped protein mm -hmm. and you did lose some lean muscle mass, what happened with your fat loss? Um, in those scenarios, that generally stays the same because when I have done those kind of tests and they're just little anecdotal case studies, um I, I, it's really just either inconsequential amounts of fat gain or, or, you know, muscle just replacing it. But the, the way this works is, you know, I, I have an in body and I've, I've had access to one for, for years and years and years and years. And so every once in a while, having not competed in 17, 18 years, you know, I just, I don't track my macros all the time. Every once in a while, I'll kind of calibrate to do it just to see where I'm at and it's very, very routine for me to eat about 100 grams of protein a day. That's just kind of my norm. And when I'm doing that and I test my body comp, my lean body mass is about here. My, my body comp, body fat percentage just doesn't really change that much. My metabolic set point is around 15% body fat. That's where I'm at right now. Um, it's actually pretty difficult for me to get down to you know, 4 or 5%, but I don't really gravitate higher. So I'm just super, super consistent. You can look at my, I weigh myself routinely. You can look at my weight charts for years and years and years, and it's never more than a pound or two different. Uh, but as soon as I decide, okay, wow, I, you know, I didn't realize my protein was sinking that low. So I make myself eat 125 to 150 grams a day. I've done this three or four times. It only takes about three months and I have regained that four or five pounds of lean body mass. Never goes higher. And that's as high as I was when I was squatting 500 pounds, deadlifting 500 pounds, eating 200 grams, 250 grams of protein a day. So it really is just kind of a homeostatic response to the amount of protein I have. Um, but that just that just kind of proves that the RDA is not that far off. And I'll give you one more caveat to that. My first master's thesis, I did a six-month study, and then I reproduced it later, a decade later, for a year where I did a, an exact controlled diet, 75 grams of protein a day, all plant-based for six months. That's what I consumed while I was training hard and in a calorie deficit. 
I lost 15 pounds of body fat and lost zero muscle eating 75 grams of plant-based protein. Um, so again, once you get up to those minimum levels of the RDA, and especially about two times the RDA, you really have 99% of your bases covered. I don't know if that left you with any follow-up thoughts or not, Erica. Very helpful. Thank you. Okay. All right. Well, you guys have a good weekend. And like I said, I will see you next week. Uh, for those of you who are clients or coaches, see you Monday for our check-in calls uh, or check-in call or Friday for the research review. See you guys.